Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Latin American Intersections podcast. I am here again with John Polga and Brian Fonseca, two of my favorite experts on just about everything from policy and security in the Latin American region, and uh, also two individuals that spend an inordinate amount of time monitoring the situation in Venezuela. So um, I don't want to spend too much time on this introduction, but... um, John, I know you've been monitoring the situation in Venezuela very closely on a personal and a professional level. So can you go ahead and give us a, a, a quick update the next couple of minutes on what's been going on politically in Venezuela within the last couple of weeks and any little bits of background information that we need uh, for our audience? Go ahead and, and throw those out there. Now, uh, to our audience, uh, a couple of us are sort of on the road while we're recording this. So if there's a little bit of background noise, I apologize in advance. But uh, we're going to go ahead with this discussion because it is a uh, very immediate discussion. So go for it, John. Tell us what's Mike, going on. You don't have to tell, Mike, you don't have to tell your audience that. Come on, man. <laughs> up? Michael, thank you for the invitation uh, once again to appear on your podcast. And Brian, it is great to share space with you. Uh, I am, I think I'm ebullient right now. Um, This is the most optimistic I have felt about prospects for democracy in Venezuela. Definitely in the the past two years. years. I was going to say, definitely in the past two years and possibly in the last 20, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So kind of to make a really long story short, because we can make this a long story, um, Nicolás Maduro Moro was uh, elected in 2013, called for kind of elections earlier than anticipated last May, May 2018, and won those elections. They were widely regarded as fraudulent. Um, the Venezuela did not invite, invite international observers, save for a group that is kind of loosely sponsored by the Venezuelan government. Okay, And so internationally, these are widely regarded as fraudulent. Maduro, fast forward ahead to January 2019, Maduro uh, was sworn in as president on January 10th. At the same time, uh, countries decided to not recognize him as a legitimate authority. Instead, um, a kind of previously little known then opposition deputy, Juan Guaido from Vargas State, uh, right down in La Guaira, uh, on the other side of uh, of the mountains from Caracas, uh, part of the Party Voluntad Popular, uh, kind of a, at least an acolyte, if not confidant, of of Leopoldo Lopez, decided, uh, well, was was elected. It was kind of his his party's turn. Was elected the uh, president of the National Assembly, and so the National Assembly majority, which again, we'll, I'll call them for the sake of consistency, I'll call them. Uh, the opposition, although I think that there might be the government now, but we'll call it the opposition. Uh, that nomenclature is difficult. It is. Those, those deputies uh, elected him president, and he was sworn in kind of as, as president of the country. Um, 
And so that are feelings. Um, then we can fast forward ahead to two days ago, January 23rd. January 23rd is a very big day in Venezuelan history. It was the moment when uh, democracy was kind of first brought to the country, um, you know, 70 years ago. There are, um, there are you know, a very famous neighborhood in, in Caracas is named 23 de Enero. And you hear this, you know, it's a very kind of, that, that is the, the, that's the important date, right, in the country. Uh, there's the 5th of July and there's, you know, January 23rd. So January 23rd comes and uh, Guaido has, and the opposition, let's say, you know, in parentheses opposition, convened massive protests. And the international community kind of in unison, uh, the Western democracies, save for some very particular examples, um, decided to recognize Guaido as the legitimate president of the country. Um, and so from that point on, there's been all sorts of movement, which is the stuff that I think we might be able to unpack right now. now but in short, there are two, there are two parallel governments. That's um, amazing. John, let me, let me interject right. for, for a quick second. I just want to point out here, if, if I didn't hear you already, um, several of these countries were actually able to announce this at uh, Davos in Switzerland uh, just a few days ago. Yes. That includes Brazil, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, <laughs> and Costa Rica uh, that indicated their support. Um, during the Davos Forum, which it, I guess to me, like the timing of this was was significant as well in terms of when all these countries, including several European countries, were all able to show their support within this context. So, um, you know, not just in terms it's of... It's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. It's remarkable. ...years, the, the opposition seems unified behind a person. It seems to have a plan. It seems to have set the government on its heels. The government is reacting rather than acting. And it's, it's marvelous in the sense of a, a plan where the international community had decided ex ante or what to do on, at a given moment and how it was going to react. And so they were very clear Right. This this was clearly a multilateral effort. There's a marvelous story right now uh, that Joshua Goodman uh, helped put together for the AP about Guaido and the events leading up to uh, mid-January. And it's amazing. He traveled to Colombia and, uh, and I believe Washington and Brazil. Yeah, he he did the Caminos Verdes route. And right. Snuck, he snuck went out of the country, snuck across the border. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and essentially met with people and said, hey, this is our plan. This is what's going to happen. And the international community, kind of the, the, the Lima group and others, got on board and got the U.S. on board. Well, and that's, so it's a U.S.-supported plan, but not a, it's not a U.S. plan, but it's a U.S.-supported plan. Right. And I think that's an important distinction. Too. Well, and I think that so speaks, I... too, to, you know, he, he, I want to – I don't want to throw the word courage out there, but some of the uh, some almost the audacity of this plan is that he was able to go to these different countries and mm. garner the support and then return to Venezuela. And apparently, you know, with enough um, with enough confidence to actually return to Venezuela within this environment where, you know, there's been all this political repression of, you know, yeah. many members of the National Assembly, et cetera, and the opposition and you know, it, with, <laughs> with full confidence, almost, I mean, br this bravado in some ways. Um, so, Mike, can I jump in a few minutes? Uh, for sure, Brian. Because I'm getting, I'm getting excited just listening to John. But, and, 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 you, and you, Michael. Uh, but listen, um, two things I, I want to unpack. Uh, one is, is this is coming down to sort of the, the battle between legitimacy and power. Right. So there is no doubt that Waido has been working incredibly hard to accumulate legitimacy. He's right. got nearly the entire hemisphere calling him president. He's mobilized and unified in opposition that for the last two decades has been fractured and very personalistic. Right. So he's done that. Mm hmm. On the other side of the of the fence, I was going to say he doesn't have the guns. Shut down and right. Uh, <laughs> the other side of the fence, he doesn't have the guns. 
Maduro yeah. still has the power. So, so now you're running into the dilemma where in order for Guaido to remain, and there's some other curveballs in here, by the way, but in order for his movement to maintain steam, at some point, the guns got to change sides. At some point, the military has to come in behind the opposition. Now, when you say the military has to come in behind the opposition, we're not talking about any type of a, a bloody coup. We're just simply saying the, the military has to recognize the, the, the new Why political um, yeah Yeah, I mean, he, essentially, they have to recognize the legitimacy, right, of right. The, the Wido president. Now, here's what's really also fascinating. And in fact, I can't claim credit for this. I'm going to give it to my colleague, Dr. Frank Moore, who spent the, 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 the day reading the entire Venezuelan constitution. He concluded the following, that there is a provision in the constitution that Waido has 30 days to announce new elections. Or, yeah. or we run into a place where we have two illegitimate presidents, constitutionally speaking. Now, wait, if Guaido yes. can, can call that, he's calling that as part of the National Assembly or as an interim president? As head of the National Assembly, by the way. Okay. Right? So, and, mm-hmm. and that's what I wanted to clarify, just because if we're talking about the interim president, but the, the other government of Venezuela contests that, then, you know, there's, I guess there would be some concern about the legitimacy even under the Constitution. But if he's able to call that as the head of the National no, Assembly. No, no, he, no the, if, 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 the, if the opposition, and this is the discussion that Frank Moore and I had earlier. If the opposition is claiming that they're legitimately empowered because of the constitutional provisions that say that because of Article 233 of the Constitution. Thank you. And, and now yes. they're going to essentially claim legitimacy because of some provisions in the Constitution, but not uphold the others. It throws the whole thing into question. That's number one. I think it's important to at least point that out. So why, though, we're sort of blessing as the president, but he is an interim president. He is not the sort of elected, tenured president of the country. He has 30 days to call an election by which he will likely become a candidate and likely become the president if this holds. But that's an important part of the process that I think is it, it has to be noted. Right. But I, I want to say that. So on one end, I said I was going to say two things. One was this legitimacy versus power. Right. The second um, in the second one, I'm going to rain a little bit on John. John, can I do that? Can I just, uh, you know, kind of rain a little bit on the I need, I need gonna, you to temper John my enthusiasm. Do it anyway. You know, the Marine you know, in the room always has to rain on everybody it. else. It's okay. No, that's, that's just how it works. Okay, all right, all right. So here's the problem. I think that because of the – John's absolutely right in everything he said, right? But the one thing he said that he feels is this tremendous sense of hope that – something there is now an expectation that john has and by the way john's on this side right uh, uh, of uh you know he's in the united states he's not on the ground passionately out in the streets but john has a tremendous but i have family now. i have family there out in the streets i have to no, say no but what i right but what i mean by that john is that the expectations that you have imagine the expectations of those out on the streets it's sure. incredibly high right Yes, And it may yep. embolden the opposition to think it has more behind it than it actually does. And see, part of that inspiring of hope also comes from the international community led by the United States. And, and, and again, this was part of a conversation I was having earlier today. Of course, we're all over the place now having this conversation, these conversations. But I distinctly remember a period very, very important to Miamians. In which there is this um, tremendous, uh, you know, hope that there was going to be uh, an opportunity to return a country back to democracy. Right. And that the United States was fully behind it. And then that group landed on the shores of Cuba only to find that the United States had gone as far as they could. And they were slaughtered on the beaches. Right. You all are very familiar right. with the Bay of Pigs. And, right. and part of that, and I don't say this to be facetious, right, or to be colorful. I say this because I think that there has to be a bit of caution. This is this is not a sprint. This is a this is a this is a marathon, and and the opposition, why though, has to be very calculated in terms of slowing the pace of this down. Right. Because it can get out of hand very quickly. You now have the the sort of media reporting that you have Russian contractors on the ground. Something I wrote about in foreign policy almost a year ago. Yes. Was possible. Wagner. Wagner, and we're very, right? we're very proud of you for being published in foreign policy, Brian. 
okay. Now let me interject with. Let me interject though. No, I'm not finished, Michael. Oh my god. Okay. Go, 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 go. You asked us to come on your show. Hold on. All right. So, so of course, you know, you got Russia sort of in the mix now. And, and at the end of the day, here's what's happening. There's a bluff calling of the Americans right now, right? Marco Rubio said we are going to levy diplomatic and economic might. And we're doing that, by the way. The Bank of London today rejected on the guidance of the National Assembly not to... One, to, to one, $1.2 billion in, in gold reserves, not to release boom. them. Not, not giving yeah. it to the Maduro regime. That's one. Yeah. Next, I bet you... And, and you bring me on the show again, Mike, if I'm wrong, and call me out. But I bet you that if things don't change, oil sanctions are next. The United States is going to sanction oil. They've that's announced it. They've, they've said they're on the table for next week. They are on the table. And that's probably going to happen. The problem is you have well, I mean, all of the yeah. oil companies saying, hey, don't do it, don't do it. No, right? here's the thing, though. I don't believe, and I, this is kind of an off-the-cuff business perspective, <laughs> but it's like most oil companies aren't necessarily going to miss what's what what they what they do with venezuela anyway i mean especially not that's in not terms true. of what that's, i mean we don't true i mean how much are we bringing to the u.s at this point a couple a couple digit percentage right i mean what three or four percentage of 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 that wealth but you still have companies on the ground in the united states that probably don't want that and then if you look at the press releases two weeks ago you had an american company called Arepla, delaware-based company that received provisions in venezuela to occupy three oil fields they were in discussions with the U.S. government to try to get a pass to do that. So I think that the American private sector is kind of saying, ah, you know, I think that there's some there. Now, uh, I will give you that it's probably not the magnitude of the shells and chevrons and so forth, but you've still got on the ground equity that the American private sector has. OK, that's and, true. And, and that could have shocks also to the international market, too. Don't don't forget about that. Right. The ripple effect. But OK, that's part of the levying of sanctions. But now you have both Mexico and Russia. I mean, this is where it's kind of gone in this international domain. You have Mexico and Russia both offering to be moderate or mediators between the opposition and the government. That's now, where that, that's where things are are in a bad place. Wait, because... John, one second. I just want to kind of back Brian up on one thing, and that is simply the caution, uh, sort of being cautious about our enthusiasm. And I'm going to cite quite simply. Uh, at, when, at the death of Chavez, there was a huge celebration, especially across South Florida with the Venezuelan diaspora. I remember a lot of uh, mm-hmm. honking horns the moment it was announced. Uh, you know, a lot of people were, were very enthusiastic about what the possibilities were post-Chavez. Now, that was 2013. And, you know, here we are where we are now. And, um, you know, even myself, like I've mentioned to you before, John, I mean, you know, some of the, the, the people and companies that I was sort of advising on the side a little bit, I was also enthusiastic about Venezuela's future, the possibilities of uh, investment there, but the Mike, social impact the companies Mike, could but have. I, but, but I wasn't. But I wasn't. That's the difference. <laughs> no, but, but Mike, Mike, and, and to the point, and again, this is not about John. I'm just kind of picking up on, on what John said to, to, to bring out something completely distinct from what John was saying. John was right. Everything he said. But the point I'm trying to make is that you, you need hope to stay in the streets, right? The, the Venezuelans need this. That's thing exactly to right. To see this thing through. You right. need that hope. There's a lot more momentum than to... there has been. In the the past, opposition sure. has been depressed since the crackdown on on the marches in 2017. No, it has doubt. been a depressed in... opposition. You've had no doubt possibly two million people leave the country since that moment. Right. Uh, no doubt. That, that is a fact, and, and so you need hope to move them back in the streets, and that's why they're in the streets in tens of thousands. The problem is the managing of expectations, because, because here's the problem. What goes next is apathy, right? Well, now, how much – when does that apathy set in, though? I mean, like, right now, you have – Look, man, if, if nothing comes out of this, right, in, in two years from now, I mean, that's a tough part. I, I just I, – I only call – Possibly. I, I think that – let I me let, let me ask you this. Be, let me let me ask the question this but, way. Mike, let me finish my thought. Okay, I think ahead. that there are reasons to be optimistic. And John is absolutely right. There's unique things about what we're seeing right now. Most people in the world didn't know the name Wilo three weeks ago, four weeks ago. I didn't, I well, didn't that's know another Wilo point we need ago. to address. That's me, another me either, John. I had no idea who the guy was. I mean, I heard ah, no, I, I didn't know him. I will openly Wait, admit I didn't know Brian, who he was a month ago. Brian, let me yeah. let me hand this back to John for a second. John, do you know anything about why here's the thing 
why is the opposition backing Guaido and why is the, the uh, international community backing Guaido? Aside from the, the, the trip that he made, what is it that brought him to the forefront in, in both of these circles? I, I am not going to be as effective at answering that question as I, I want to be at answering a different question that you didn't ask. Um, okay. so, so can I just say, so Guaido is young. He's enthusiastic. He's energetic. He was yep. relatively unknown by the government. He yep. is more moderate than other people in the opposition, so he's palatable to a wider base among the opposition or government. Yep. Where, again, that, that so nomenclature. So his politics are a unifying factor within the opposition. <sighs> so for... Well, he, also doesn't, he also doesn't carry the baggage of Leopoldo Lopez, Maria Machado... Antonio or Enrique Desma. Capriles. He hasn't been in the headlines for 15 years. Maria Correa Machado has been... Baggage. Yeah, they needed new life. They needed new life. He's found... thirty-five, you guys. He's young. Of course. of course, you know he's pretty. <laughs> That's right. No, listen, it's all absolutely accurate, right? Is he the guy? We'll see. He's been able to do more to unify and mobilize than anyone before him in absolutely the contemporary period. And Absolutely. that's where John's optimism comes from. And that's where all of the optimism of the tens of thousands of people in the streets. Can I actually just expand on, on that optimism thing to, to conclude that thought? Because I think that the, the, your pushback on that, Brian and Michael, is entirely <laughs> merited and appropriate. Provocative, um, John. Provocative. I'm just trying to so let me tell. So let me just tell you, unpack that optimism a little bit. At the, you know, the top of this podcast, I explained, look. Their unit with opposition slash government is unified for the first time. You have the international community kind of working in concert, the democracies in the Western Hemisphere working in concert, apparently, with with those people. You have the government on their heels. All of that is cause for optimism. But this was a bold gambit, right, by by Guaido, by those parties, and by the international community. Because Marco Rubio... Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sorry. And and if it you can say it, I will not. And so if it's <laughs> if it backfires, though, I'm not quite sure what the plan B is, right? Right. And so even last night, last night I was thinking, what what happens now? Like, what's the next step? Because clearly, on you know on on state television yesterday, the the high the military high command got on and said, hey, we support we support Maduro. Now it was. Maybe not tepid, but it, but it wasn't enthusiastic backing. But nonetheless, it was backing. And I thought, well, so now what happens? And so I think that two, there are two significant events or non-events, right, from yesterday to today. And the first significant non-event is that there has not been a crackdown, you guys. That's, right? That's true. That's an excellent so, point, John. And so excellent I thought point. that if this, if this failed... Right. If this Wait. gambit fails, it's going to fail immediately is what I had thought. Let me let the me toss a question. The longer this lasts. Yeah, no, sure. Let me, let me toss a question to both of you here and, and see. Who no, no, wait, wait. I want John to – hold on. I want John to finish this thought. All right. So go ahead. Go ahead. That's finish so those thoughts. I think the – I actually think that the longer this goes on – this is in kind of contrast to what Brian was saying. I think that lo the longer this goes on, the stronger the opposition grows because the opposition now has – as Brian said before, legitimacy in the eyes of foreign governments, democratic governments, right? It has legitimacy in the eyes of a majority of Venezuelans on the streets or in their country, at least. And it has, it has made but the John, government afraid of cracking down. But, but it doesn't have power. But, but they didn't but if, need to. But, but if to crack down. Okay, now, now let me let me let me ask this. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 Michael, Michael, stay on the stay on the stay on the sideline for a moment. This is John and I. Let us go. We're having fun. Let's argue this. You had twenty deaths. You you had, but you did not have the large scale repression that was expected. That's what I mean. Now, now, hold on though. But that can pause this Those twenty people, obviously, right? That is not insignificant. But no, it's no, not but that large-scale repression. Let me let me jump is, in now. Okay, but, but, Brian, but Brian and John, had... Brian and John. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 Mike, Mike, hold on, man. Hold. But, but, but I have <laughs> the last time in 2017. How many people died from the protests? It's over a hundred, right? But let me come in over with how this. Long of a, a period of time. This is the question I want to ask, though. Here, check this out. How much of the lack of of a of oppression with these protests 
may speak to say a fisher within the military. So the military brass has gotten on 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 TV there we go. and is back there in we Maduro. Go. Hold on, let me there finish. We go. So so yep. the so so the brass is publicly backing Maduro on television. Yes. But yes. are there enough fishers with mid to lower grade officers and you know enlisted military persons within the the within Venezuela who are breaking from that to some degree or another? Uh, that are not necessarily willing to participate in the oppression Look, of the Venezuelan people. And that's part of what's opening that floodgate. So can you guys Mike, speak to we that? Don't know the an- Mike, we don't know the answer to that. The, the thing is, is it's, it's actually quite conceivable that there, there was a, there was a intentional effort not to pr- provoke mass repressive pr- repression just yes. at minimum as a re- as a pressure release valve you you have now in there are so many people inspired in the streets the last thing you want to do is go all in right now you're playing with fire because the revolution sort of that idea of sort of the fruit vendor tunisia scenario is out there and so i'm not you know i, I don't think that the you know, one one option or one sort of thinking is that the government in you know by design said hey we we got to be hard we got to be in the streets but we can't be Right. We have a question of legitimacy right now. We probably don't want to poke the bear too much. We got the Americans threatening, uh, you know, that, that all options are on the table. Let, let's let's you know, let's be this pragmatic. Right. That's one. The second is the, the fissures, the military rank. Uh, the leadership didn't want to give those orders. Right. But I don't think they want to give those orders anyhow. That's not the military. Well, place. and I think Singular that speaks to my question. Like how much of this is a calculation by the, the top military officers in Venezuela versus potential fissures within the military? But, and, but you can't at that point, you can't divorce the government from the top military ranks. They could have all that's been correct. part of that design. That's correct. But, but, but Maduro is effectively... Seen, has effectively joined senior military leadership and the government. The absolutely. senior military leadership absolutely, is the government. John. Yeah, absolutely. Now yeah. we don't know if there are fissures down the rank, but I will tell you this much: that you need more than a dozen soldiers in a small outpost in order to overthrow the government. Absolutely. We need more than a dozen staged at the border with with a few blankets of cascade weapons to overthrow the government, right? And so we have not seen any evidence of any major fissures within the institution. Do we believe that there's discomfort down the ranks? Yes. Right. Do we well, believe there that- is given to given to evidence of, you know, massive defections and. Uh... Well, and when I say fissures, I may be speaking more to the, the brass, the you know, the top brass may realize that giving any orders to to um, mid-grade officers, et cetera, may not. Their, their orders may not be adhered to very, quite simply. Not necessarily, you know, we may not right, have rebellions to worry about. the but... orders given either. I think what you have to take it as face value is that it was not large-scale repression like was expected. And whether that's a result of yes. the brass, as a, whether it's a result of the government mm-hmm. and the brass, whether it's a result of fear of reprisals down the ranks, John's right. There have been defections. But we're not seeing any other real fractures in which units are popping up ready to, to take the fight. You would see large-scale uh, jailings at that point, right? You would see I, military. I, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. I don't think that's what we're going to see. And, and Brian, you and I, I you know, together with some other people, including Harold Trincunas, the brilliant and the brilliant. very kind Harold great Trincunas. Foreign policy, great foreign yes. policy piece out today. Really yes. balanced, measured, measured yes. piece. Check it out. We, we, we wrote about Venezuelan military, military culture a couple of years ago. And, and, well, you, um, you wrote about it. We just kind of all took credit for it. No, that's, that's a lot. And, <laughs> hey, real quick, guys. And Brian, you know, can you come a little closer to your microphone? Because I'm, oh, I'm not picking yeah, you yeah. up. All right. my bad. One, of, one of our insights from that piece, Brian, is that the, the, the Fan Bay, right? The Fuerza Armada Nacional Bolivariana is is pragmatic or at least senior leadership is, is pragmatic. And, and that means that despite having to take kind of ridiculous loyalty vows and um, tying their futures up in, in Patria Socialismo or or Muerte, at the end of the day, uh, they might not actually choose that. Uh, That's absolutely right. And it shows, I think, I think that there is a, some willingness or at least a consideration in play to uh to defect right the question is what what is the point what is the scenario that makes them defect and if you have a leader 
that can't go outside in public, who doesn't trust his own personal security or his senior staff because he's worried about being overthrown. And so he hires private, private military, um, private military. What are they? Con- what are contractors. they? Contractors from Russia to protect him. And then is being denied, uh, money internationally how, how long can he hold on no man i right? agree with you uh, and and and, and, and so then it's one it's just one more thing really that i do want to hit um and i'm sorry to to steamroll but this is that leads me to, to what could be a possible middle point here which is this becomes a new cold war because russia is supporting russia and china are supporting the venezuelan government and they want to get paid for the money that Venezuela owes them, right? And they're supporting Maduro. And Western democracies, with the exceptions of, you know, Mexico and, and the hybrid regimes in, in Nicaragua and, and Bolivia, are supporting Guaido. And so if that's the case, then does this mean there's going to be a standoff between, let's just say, the United States and Russia? And if so, how long does that last and how is that resolved? Um, John, let me, no, let me interject on, with something. No, 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 oh. no, no, you can't, no, 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 you're the host, man. Stop, stop trying to, uh, you know, hold on. John makes a, makes a really good point. And I think John, what John, what I hear John saying is this is another signpost in the growing global tensions between the West. Oof. Right. And the totally. rest. And, totally. and this is another signpost of that. There are others that have transpired, but this is another one. I don't think though. That the, that the Russians will send military to Venezuela because I don't think, frankly, Venezuela matters that much to the Russians. Mm. You guys can debate me on the equity they mm. have in the oil fields. I'm fully aware of that. But I don't think – I think Russia gets more – because I've talked to some oil folks on the ground yeah. in Venezuela, yeah. and the Russians own a significant amount of reserves, P1 sure. reserves or, or reserves, but haven't really done much to, to, to begin producing or exploiting them. And his analysis was the following. They don't need to. They'd rather see chaos and uncertainty in Venezuela because Mm. it occupies American foreign policy. Mm. Right? It becomes a flashpoint for the United States. It keeps us sort of in a space of of concern. And that's indicative of what a Cold War is meant to do anyhow. But so so I think John's John's on with that. And that's that's a really important point. Michael, you're probably going to have to ask us, and I say ask us, ask us maybe a final question. If not, your viewers or your listeners are going to get bored of us. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So, so besides being the host, I'm trying Legit, to – this could be a, a three-hour conversation if we wanted no, to. Right, absolutely, There's absolutely. So, much more I want to talk so, about. so as I said before, like with – as far as being the host, I also try to bring in the market perspective here. So in, in speaking from a market perspective, if I'm China or Russian, I have investments tied up in Venezuela. Russia, not as much as China – does it really behoove me to continually back um, the Maduro government when by, ha- you know, w- by when I have multiple countries starting to back the opposition and back this interim government to the point where, uh, you know, just an example, Venezuelan bond prices surged. Um, yes. They jumped by 35 uh, percent. That's 31 hmm. cents on the dollar. Uh, because just of the hope. last few days because of hope because of hope now, because now hold on hope. let me finish let me finish my question so does that mean that if i am china and i have all this investment tied up there doesn't that not mean that ultimately as this moves forward is within my investment interests to go ahead and back this opposition and move this maduro regime along and out of the way so that we can move forward with what venezuela can do within the market and potentially pay back whatever it owes me or i can move forward with my investments there with a higher uh return on that investment ultimately in the future because right now it's just throwing good money after bad right Listen, mike so if, I, if the... I, I think you're asking the wrong question michael oh no. if, with all due respect what is the right question john <laughs> yeah or maybe you're just seeing it through uh what i, what I would perceive to be the, uh, the incorrect lens okay you think that Russia's interests? You think that Russia's interests are economic? Exactly. No, 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 and, and I, I don't, no, no, and, and that's, I don't that's think part so. Of the question. I, I think they're political. Wait, wait. Absolutely. I think they're geostrategic, I, and that's yeah. that's the second part of the question. China's interests, I think, in my opinion, are mostly are economic. economical. 
I That's believe correct. that I Russia's agree. interests there are geopolitical. So how much interest yes. Russia has in those geopolitical but interests in the first place? Mike, haven't they told you? I mean, has it, hasn't Russia and China already made a statement? The fact that Russia yes. was one of the first to come out and double down on the regime yes. tells yes. you one thing. The fact that China was a little what more they're willing worried, to do. Absolutely. But that it, is yep. fully expected of Russia. Now, my question to you, John, for, or I'm sorry, my question. No. Hey, listen, if it was economic, no, they wouldn't play that game. That's the point that John's making. I see. Is the fact that this is geostrategic and not economic. Yes. They don't. They, there's no real the, the, the return on investment of making that bad call is not as impactful as the economic argument you're making. You know what the the loss, right, is not the the type of economic loss that you're you're thinking about. Again, they're they're doubling down on a regime that at the, at the end of the day they're not sure is going to stick around or not. And if the opposition comes in, there's no real loss for them. True. Right. When you break when you break it down, China on the other hand is a little different, which is why you know they've been a little bit more hesitant. They've not been as 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 outspoken and engaging. China's just hoping that in the next 10 to 20 years, they get the return on their investment or at least their investment back 10 to 20 years. Right. So at this point, they can afford to back the Maduro regime. But with Russia, they don't have enough tied up there to do anything except play the, the geopolitical, geostrategic game. No, I mean, they have things tied up there, but I don't think that's I, where the return on investment. I, don't think I, I agree. I agree 100 percent. And I think that if the past 70 years of history have taught us anything about Russian foreign policy. It's that uh, they're very much willing to play the long game. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And I don't mean, I don't mean five years in the future. I mean 60 years in the future. And, and right? at the end of the day, Russia is not the only battleground. This is a global battleground, right? The West versus the rest. The rest. I like, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that and use it in class. I like that. You own it. Uh, no. may, can I add something before we hang up? I, um, you had a question that I didn't answer about, I kind of half answered, about Waido and his origins and stuff. And I just think that that's beyond the scope of our discussion today. But there is shout out to Guillermo Zubiaga, yeah. who writes for uh, America Society, Council of the Americas. He's, he's in their New York office. Excellent. And he has, yeah, he has an article that he published, I don't know, two weeks ago or something. Um, which is basically an, uh, an interview with, with Guaido and talks about his, his background and history and stuff. So check that out if you're interested in uh, English language reading on, on the history of, of Guaido, who he is and what he stands for. So, Mike, I, I don't know if you need to hang up or you want to lob one question, short question, and we get a 30-second round. Um, or, or do we want to conclude here? I mean, John and I and you, Mike, we can go on for another hour or two. Absolutely. No, I think we could wrap it up and then go ahead and, and follow up again in a week or so, you know, with with whatever new developments have happened, you know, and hopefully let's do that. Hopefully this hope that we have yes. now is justified. <clears throat> oh, no, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. I wanted to say something to John. Uh, John made it, <laughs> Sorry, John. I'll make this really quick. I promise. Because uh, I disagree with him on something. And, and, um, so not, you must not, bring it to the table. No, no, no. Only because I, I think it's I think it's an important point because because John is right in raising it because I think part of the analysis now has to turn to okay, what's next? If, if this continues to go on, who does that favor? Right? History has taught us that it, it favors Maduro, but see, what's unique is the things that John brings up, right? And that is sort of this now seemingly unified opposition, the international legitimacy issue, the fact that you're now going to start to see some economic levies pressured, right? That, that sort of blockade is going to hurt, no doubt. And so I think there's reason for John to be optimistic that this is not going to snowball in the opposite direction or the, 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 the direction that history has taught us. But I will caution and say that while I appreciate the analysis History still tells us that the longer this goes on, that Maduro has the ability, by the way, to navigate the landscape. He has the ability to continue to pulse leadership. He has the ability, but he does. Because at the end of the day, as long as he controls the power, right? Yes. He has the opportunity yeah. to continue to reinforce survival of the regime, right? This is, this is akin to what we've seen in Cuba True. What we've seen in Cuba over the last six I like that, years. Brian. So I, I think it's, I like that. it's just important to say 
that these periods, right? I mean, Cuba has gone through its periods where there were highs and lows in terms of the emotional temperature and what we thought was going to be the outcome. But the longer it went on, the better you were able. Whatever happens, look, man, you got two decades of institutions that have been purged. Nothing is going to change Listen, tomorrow. We could, I'm happy to talk to you about the near impossibility of rebuilding Venezuela. We can have a very sober conversation about that next week Absolutely. or whenever Maduro falls. But I want Michael <laughs> to post a, a, a Twitter poll. Who do people agree with more? The ebullience <laughs> of John Polga. Or the or the negative, uh, the negativity, the, the negative Brian. sobriety. Yes, the <laughs> that's exactly right. If you word it that uh, way, now it's, you're 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 injecting bias in your polling. By the way, <laughs> oh, oh I'm clever. Yeah, I'm clever. clever. Hey, you know yes. what? You know what? The Marines in your office and you, Brian, have have dogged the army guy long enough that the bias will be there. And I'm just Look, letting you know now. <laughs> Mike, Mike, and, and now keep in mind, keep in mind the Marines, the department of Navy, and we got John over there on the Navy side. All right. But I want to say this, Michael, that I want you to caution going forward. We're having a conversation about Venezuela and you're bringing the U S yes. military into the conversation. Okay. I don't want uh -huh. your, your audience to think that, uh, you know, there's any conspiring here. Right, no, really absolutely not. And just a quick disclaimer for our audience. I mean, uh, several of us in these conversations yes. um, in several episodes have a have have served in the military and, um, you know, and, and have moved to other uh, points in our lives where we're working in the realm of academics or academia, um, you know, business and international relations, etc. And I think that gives all of us, you know, again, within this disclaimer, I want to say that that gives all of us a relatively unique perspective. And for full disclosure, even myself now, I'm, uh, I, I work in the reserves in civil affairs, which concentrates on things like international development um, and uh, community um, engagement and disaster relief and things like that. Um, so, you know, I, you know, obviously that does inform some of, of our perspective, but I think it brings a richer perspective to these discussions in some ways that might not necessarily be there um, in other cases. These views are our own. Yeah, they are not those of the institutions for which we work. Uh, exactly. Absolutely. You know, no, re, and that's re, important. And by the way, do not anyone, equal endorsements. <laughs> right, and if anyone takes any of us out of context, I am going to blame it entirely on the advent of deep fakes. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's true too. All right, one last wild card <laughs> question, and then we're going to go. Um, so, John, Brian, here's a wild card crystal ball question. So, right now, the military brass is backing Maduro. My question is, is as the international community begins to recognize the international government and the opposition begins to move forward with some of their plans to um, replace Maduro and his regime in some way, shape, or form, my question is this. If the opposition and the international community were to offer some type or form of amnesty to the military brass that is engaged politically with the Maduro regime for whatever issues they may have been a part of, um, any, anything they may have conspired in or, or issues that they see in terms of what that military brass has participated in against the people of Venezuela, is there potential for that military brass to go ahead and begin to recognize the opposition in some way, shape, or form? And if I, Mike, and if I worded that question wrong, I apologize. Mike, just 30 again, seconds you're go. asking the wrong question. So ask uh, the right question for me. Well, no, that's I'm just saying, John, I an, uh, already answered that in the fact that they have offered amnesty, right? Uh, Guaido has offered amnesty. Guaido has that's offered part of the, amnesty. Yeah. That's part of the provision. Uh, yep. So that is already on the table. And it's on okay. the table for the exact reasons why you're asked the question, which is probably where you're going to cut this part of the segment. But anyway, <laughs> I think the question you want to ask is if we had a crystal ball and not holding us to any particular outcome, how do we think this mm. ends? That's, that's an interesting mm. question. Because at the end of the day, John yeah. nor I really know yep. how this ends. But there are only nope. so many different variations out there. Yep. So why don't we take that question? And John, why don't you start? So, do you want, can I, with my brain or my heart? You know, this is... My uh, answer, I, I, the I, answer, my, my brain says, so my brain says that Maduro stays in power. Um, he manages to hang on. He clamps down even more on the population. 
and uh, there's a big mess globally because a bunch of governments have recognized someone who might end up being imprisoned. Um, my my heart my heart says that Maduro loses the backing of the Alto Mando, and he negotiates a transition. And Guaido calls, convenes elections, and democracy is slowly restored and institutions are slowly rebuilt. I think those are actually both excellent. Um, and I, I would probably agree with both of your thinking, uh, both of those potential scenarios. I'm going to then go a little different route. I am going to say something incredibly crazy as a potential scenario. That way, okay. uh, and I'm going to disclaimer sort of, it could be incredibly crazy, but if it does happen... Uh, I'm going to replay this for everybody to know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, here's my crazy possible scenario. Right now, the military is trying to find a way to, one, not go to jail, not hand it all over to the opposition. But yeah. what we have done successfully, or not, but what we've done is we've tied the regime to one individual, Nicolas Maduro. Right. And that means that. And Diosdado Diosdado Cabello. But yeah. You you can throw Diosdado, Tariq, and Delcy in the mix, but largely this is all about Maduro. And Jorge. Jorge. Now, what you could see happening is that the military negotiates a transition for the PSUV. Right? Oh, yeah. I could see that too. In which you have some type of elite fracture. Where the military says, look, we have the power. Because we gave the military the power, by the way. All of us. The opposition, the Maduro regime, the international community. We have all said that the power is there in that institution. So that institution has now uh, some latitude to call some shots if it wanted to. If it felt empowered, which I think it does. And it could easily say to to Maduro, Delcy, right? Listen, we're going to find a transition here. That I mean, imagine if they bring back Falcone. What if, let's throw this out there, what if Nicolas Maduro in the next week or so replaces the vice president, Delcy Rodriguez, with Falcone, the person he lost to in the elections, and then steps down putting Falcone as the president? And then Falcone appoints someone that's maybe a little in from the opposition. Uh, You know what? That might work as a peaceful transition. It, 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 I think that's the peaceful. That's that's a version of the peaceful transition scenario that I that I. Uh, I think it, I think yeah. it would be. Yeah. I, I think that's yeah. how it could roll out, John. Yeah. And, and you save a lot. I of I like blood. that because the, the, according to the Constitution, the president has the power to to appoint the vice president as if the vice president's seat were were a cabinet member. Absolutely. So, and then uh, has the ability so to step down and resign, automatically putting the vice president into the presidential seat. And if that were to, I happen, love it. If that were to yeah. happen, then the military is essentially maintaining some loyalties within the presidency, right? It's right. appeasing the international community because it's seen change through, right? Nicolas Maduro is no right. longer in the seat. And it's made the opposition sort of bring them down a little bit and bring them into the fold. What if you had a Falcone who then brought someone in from the opposition into right, the government? As vice president. Hmm. So so that could be a potential scenario where neither the opposition or Maduro wins, but neither of them yeah. lose entirely either. And those are often the best negotiations when both people walk away from the, ta- the, 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 the table having lost a little, but maybe having preserved a little. I sure hope that your scenario that that happens or something similar to that where, where there's no violence. Um, Right. That's the worst right. of, of it all. No and more violence. Of institutions, right. mass repression, mm-hmm. that's all violent. Yeah. This would that's be a right. way for the military to say, we have the power, we're going to take the power, and we're going to find that's a right. transition here that we can yes. make all sides a little happy, appease them, but none of them told... Because the military, I don't care if you give them amnesty or not. The military does not want the pendulum to swing all the way in the other direction. True enough. No. Do you think the it military wants to say views, what happens as well? Do you think right. the military views Guaido as moderate enough, you know, for a future transition? Look, why Guaido does not have a president. He is a national assembly member. 
right? I mean, he's been elected as a deputy. Yeah. At the end of cool. the day, yeah. he's just an interim president. If you make this too much about Wilo, you lose the long ball. You got to mm. keep this away from being personalistic. That's what happened to Leopoldo Lopez and, and Capriles. and all yes. It became personalistic. Look, yep. Wilo is simply part of the transition. He's got a place. He's filling it now. It needs the transition, and he needs to, to move on to what and know that he had this. He started this. But the minute he makes it about him, we're back to square one. You're going to start to see fractures in the opposition when things aren't moving along the way they should. And it can get really tricky really quickly. True enough. And personalism in Latin America is another discussion that we have to have. Yeah. Anyway, so I, guys. I, got, I, I'm, I, got, I, I apologize <laughs> getting a little heated there and throwing it out there. But I think it's, you know, again, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the caution to the opposition. Don't make this about an individual. True. True. This is but a great also, discussion, guys. I, you no, know what? And we've you, got to wrap I'll, it up. Yeah, I, let I, me let the last last thing and you have got to keep it to 10 seconds each guys your shameless plug on whatever you or your organizations or your affiliates or associates have going on that you want to highlight 10 seconds John go shameless plug. I don't have any plugs I work at US Naval <laughs> Academy and I, I spend all of my free time uh, playing with my son or uh, or doing research so um, <laughs> All right. No shameless uh, plugs, John. But, I, but I'd be happy. But I'd be happy to talk or write about Latin America. Excellent. All right. Um, so, Brian, ten seconds. Go. Shameless plug. Um, uh, don't have one either. I work at Florida International University. I spend most of my free time reading John's work and playing with my son. and and, okay i'll do a shameless plug for you both uh i spend a lot of my free time reading both john and brian's work and the work of their colleagues and associates within the organizations that they work for um it is has always been my pleasure to engage with and work with um you know florida international university gordon institute or jack d gordon institute of public policy um and the Latin American Caribbean Center there, which are, which are all a, a, a treasure chest of resources uh, that can be um, publicly accessed um, and, and uh, brought, in, brought in for almost any conversation, you know, within the private sector, public sector, and civic sector. Anyway, that's the most shameless plug that we're going to get for the day. Uh, John, thank you. Brian, thank you. As always, you guys are doing amazing work. And uh, I could not uh, make a lot of my own work possible without um, excellent people like you. So thanks, Mike. Thank you, Michael. Take care. Hey, thanks, John. Good night, guys. guys. Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time. A big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.